0: Hi guys, welcome back to part two of episode 157 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. And those were some sounds of um, the National Park that this episode takes us to, courtesy of Jonathan Beniam on YouTube, just to put you in the space of the kind of tranquility and sounds of... That unfortunately were shattered by, by gunfire and shelling that morning when these tourists were killed and, and taken hostage. But before I get into part two, I want to thank new um I want to thank existing patron Gina K for upping to annual membership. Thank you so much for that. So I'm gonna get straight into it because I have a lot to get through on this episode, and it took me. A lot to put this all together because it was kind of a jigsaw of a bit from that source and then they don't mention that and a bit from that source. So where we left off, I talked about um, the Bwindi National Park in Uganda. I talked about um, the tourists and why they were there, mainly gorilla trekking. So you have to listen to part one if you haven't. And then I talked about how the tranquility of the Bahoma camp where everybody stays when they're doing this trek in the Buindi National Park um, was shattered by basically a blitz attack by at this point people unknown or rebels unknown. And once Elizabeth Garland came out of her tent, and people were able to kind of get their bearings as to what was going on and speak to people who had been left behind and why they 'd been left behind, which we 'll talk about and The Ugandan military was hot on the trail of these people thirty one tourists were now missing from the Bahoma camp, and a number had been had been killed in the camp and it was now an international incident. The Ugandan government had suspicions of who was responsible for this from the get go and they really were hot on the trail pretty much immediately because I talked about how this area is is quite heavily kind of guarded. But unfortunately, the area that goes into the Congo and into Rwanda, the border areas are essentially like a free-for-all. So at this point in time, 31 tourists could be walking, being marched towards Congo or they could be marched towards Rwanda and they just weren't sure. But they were given confirmation not long after when a group of rebels called the Rwandan Hutus took responsibility for this mass attack and abduction. And this chilled people around the world who knew who the Hutus were to the core, because they had a recent history of being extremely violent, i.e. the Rwandan genocide of 1994, And that's why it's important to talk a little bit about the Rwandan genocide, although I will save a really deep dive of it for a future episode where I'll do Diane Fossey's case who *Gorillas in the Mist is based on. So Uganda borders a number of countries. Uganda is entirely landlocked, but it has South Sudan in the north and then Congo or the Democratic Republic of Congo is to the west. Kenya is to the east and Rwanda and Tanzania are to the south. Rwanda you may know for unfortunately one of the worst, what is seen as a genocide today, but unfortunately world governments at the time, leading world governments did not see it as a genocide. Rwanda hit the headlines early in the in the mid 1990s due to the Rwandan genocide, which happened over 100 days in 1994. The Rwandan genocide, much like the Bosnian War, has always been an event that I've struggled to get a grasp on um, as much as I've read about it and seen movies about it and watched documentaries about it. I've always struggled because it's such a, it's such a complex issue, much like I talked about recently on the Brice Teton episode in Europe. I also just want to say really quickly, I realise there's an episode of Locked Up Abroad on this. And I was shocked because Locked Up Abroad is like my favourite documentary show ever. I've never seen this episode as far as I know. I have not watched it because I haven't been able to get access to it and I probably won't watch it. I only found out right before I recorded it that there was an episode. So I do recommend Locked Up Abroad. I think about certain episodes all the time. I thought about it, putting this, this particular episode together, actually certain things that people did to get away from the rebels or, you know feign illness to get away from them and things like that and it brought up memories of episodes of Locked Up Abroad that I've seen. But back to Rwanda. Over 100 days in 1994, over a million Rwandans were killed in essentially what was an ethnic cleansing. Um, Rwanda already had a turbulent history regarding ethnic tensions. So Rwanda as a nation was mostly split between two a majority and a minority ethnic group. You get this, we talked about this on the Annecy shootings with Iraq. We talked about this with um, Serbia recently. And Rwanda is similar. They have the majority Hutus and they have the min- minority Tutsis. And the BBC did quite a lot of work, including The Guardian. I read a lot of articles that really made this easier to understand According to the BBC, quote, the two ethnic groups are actually very similar. They speak the same language, inhabit the same areas, follow the same traditions. However, Tutsis are often taller and thinner than Hutus, with some saying their origins lie in Ethiopia. When the Belgian colonists arrived in 1916, they produced identity cards classifying people according to their ethnicity. The Belgians considered the Hutus to be, sorry, The Belgians considered the Tutsis to be superior to the Hutus. Not surprisingly, the Tutsis welcomed this this idea, and for the next 20 years they enjoyed better jobs and educational opportunities than their neighbours. Resentment among the Hutus gradually built up, culminating in a series of riots in 1959. More than 20,000 Tutsis were killed, and many more fled to the neighbouring countries of Burundi, Tanzania, and Uganda. When Belgium relinquished power and granted Rwanda independence in 1962, the Hutus took their place. Over subsequent decades, the Tutsis were portrayed as the scapegoats for every crisis. Unquote. So Uganda offered Tutsis refugee status over these decades, and a peace accord was actually signed in 1993 that essentially became pointless. But in 1994, the plane of then Rwandan President Juvenal habira Hab I did have it right, guys. Habyarimana was shot down over Kigali Airport, which is the capital of Rwanda. This happened on April 6, 1994, and the country immediately erupted into violence. The president was a member of the major- um, the majority Hutus. Almost immediately, the presidential guard ordered revenge on the Tutsis and any minorities. The opposition was murdered, the political opposition and the slaughter of both Tutsis and even moderate Hutus began. As is always the case with, you know, recruiting in genocides or wars across the world, boys and young men were recruited almost immediately to join the ranks um, to bolster numbers forming militias and hunting and butchering anyone perceived as the enemy. The BBC, quote, encouraged by the presidential guard and radio propaganda, an unofficial militia group called the Inter-Humwi, meaning those who attacked together, was mobilised. At its peak, this group was 30,000 strong, unquote. So, Hudu civilians were essentially told that you won't get away either unless you you murder your Tutsi neighbours. And they were given incentives by military personnel to do this. They were given money, food. They were told that they could claim the land of their dead Tutsi neighbours if they killed them. It was over three months. A lot of you will remember the Rwandan genocide. And I I vaguely do. I was young. um, But it hit world headlines for a reason. It was so quick, so kind of almost organised and so violent. As is always the case, women were subjected to some of the worst violence during the Rwandan genocide of 1994. Women were gang raped, raped with spears and gun barrels. They were held as sexual slaves, all sexually mutilated. According to Human Rights Watch, quote, these crimes were frequently part of a pattern in which Tutsi women were raped after they had witnessed the torture and killings of their relatives and the destruction and looting of their homes. According to witnesses, many women were killed immediately after being raped. Other women managed to survive only to be told that they were being allowed to live so that they would die of sadness, unquote, which just hit me so hard. You can live because your life will never be the same again because we've killed everybody in your family, all the men, your sons, your husbands. By the end of the Rwandan War, 70% of the population of Rwanda that was left behind were women because so many men were just murdered. Now, the UN was initially kind of had a bit of a... um. They weren't super involved, but they would ultimately withdraw early on. This was after 10 UN troops were murdered and the withdrawal of the United Nations would be something that people would talk about even today for, for good reason. In the July of 1994... After 100 days of murder and violence, the capital of Rwanda, Kigali, was recaptured um, by the, the Tutsi minority and a ceasefire was declared. And now the Hutus were being hunted because they'd participated essentially in a genocide against the Tutsis. An estimated 2 million Hutus fled across the border to Congo, which was then known as Zaire, So they then brought all of their drama to the Congo and since up to 5 million people there have died at the hands of the Hutus. And a Congolese Tutsi rebel group still remains active today. They refuse to lay down their arms and call a ceasefire because they would say that they would then be at risk of genocide because of what's happened in the past. So how does Uganda come into this? The Guardian explained Uganda's role in the Rwandan war and the overspill from it in an article from 2017 that I have to shout out because it was so long and so detailed. It was about 5,000 words, I think, um, from a journalist called Helen Epstein, and it's titled America's Secret Role in the Rwandan Genocide. Quote, Three and a half years before the genocide, a rebel army of mainly Rwandan Tutsi exiles known as the Rwandan Patriotic Front or RPF had invaded Rwanda and set up camps in the Northern Mountains. They had been armed and trained by neighbouring Uganda, which continued to supply them throughout the ensuing civil war in violation of the UN Charter. In Uganda, a new generation of Tutsi refugees grew up, but they soon became embroiled in the lethal politics of their adoptive country. Some formed alliances with Ugandan Tutsis and the closely related Hema, Museveni's tribe, many of whom were opposition supporters and therefore seen as enemies by then president Milton Obote, who ruled Uganda in the 1960s and again in the early 1980s, unquote. So Obote was before Idi Amin and then after Idi Amin. So, It's incredibly complex and if you want to know the full backstory, which I read the whole article from The Guardian as to how this all built up and the tensions with Uganda, the US and the UK, I suggest reading this Guardian article. But in short, over the decades, Uganda became a base for the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which is the RPF. And when the RPF tried a number of times to invade back into Rwanda in what was essentially borderless territory, the now Ugandan President Museveni was ordered by international um, powers such as the United States, the UN, to not let the Tutsis cross back into Uganda and to stop funding the RPF and to just let it be. But he didn't do any of what he promised, even though he did promise to do that. The Ugandan army continued to fund the RPF and the RPF was allowed free passage back and forth across the Ugandan, Rwandan and Congolese borders. The UN was attempting to stop weapons crossing these borders, but to no avail. The Guardian, quote, The US was monitoring Ugandan weapons shipments to the RPF in 1992, but instead of punishing Museveni, Western donors, including the US, doubled aid to his government and allowed his defence spending to balloon to 48% of Uganda's budget, compared with 13% for education and 5% for health, even as AIDS was ravaging the country. In 1991, Uganda purchased 10 times more US weapons than in the preceding 40 years combined. Unquote. So I'm telling you all this because as we get into the abduction of these tourists, you'll understand why, when they were all rounded up, these particular rebels were asking specifically for American and British tourists. So George H W Bush was president at the time and he was reticent to sanction Uganda. He believed as with most of his advisors that it would harm US interests there and essentially other world powers just fell into line including, you know, the 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 UK, Australia, The Guardian, quote, and far from seeking stability, the US, by allowing Uganda to arm the RPF, was setting the stage for what would turn out to be the worst outbreak of violence ever recorded in the African continent, unquote. And this would be the Rwandan genocide. This obviously only further enraged the Hutus in neighbouring Rwanda. Britain was considered a global bystander, essentially just going along with the US And the two, even today, in revisionist kind of history and different articles, they do get most of the global blame for inciting a lot of the violence that went on and arming, you know, essentially also the UN for not stepping in because they didn't classify it as a genocide at the time. In fact, both the United States and the UK downplayed what was happening in Rwanda, even at the height of the Rwandan genocide, And when news was coming out through the Associated Press and just images of these rebels just, you know, taking over villages, killing everyone in them and targeting the minority Tutsis, they called it a civil war and not a genocide. Um, And I guess this is the whole argument. Like, you know... I believe this is a genocide, you know, and I believe it was at the time. And I do believe that they knew it was at the time, but I think they just didn't want to get involved because of their interests, which most people agree on now. Linda Melvin wrote a piece for The Guardian in 2020 titled, Why are the UK and US still downplaying the genocide of the Tutsi in Rwanda? And there was a piece that I picked out from it that really stood out to me. She was talking about how the Czech Republic's ambassador at the time, um, someone called Karal Kavanda, um, had essentially said to UK diplomats that what was happening was reminiscent of quote the Nazi Holocaust" and that essentially a similar thing was well underway. Quote, Kovanda remembers a friendly arm taking him aside as UK diplomats told him such inflammatory language outside the council would be unhelpful, unquote. So people raped, murdered, raped with spears, um, complete, you know, over a million people being killed, women, children, boys being taken from their homes and trained as rebels. But let's not use inflammatory language. We have an issue much the same today, um, same thing too focused on language and how it offends people, not focused on the real issues. So that's why it stood out to me. So to sum up to the rebel Hutus, Uganda, the USA and the UK were all major players in the Rwandan genocide and they had to pay. After the genocide, many Hutus fled into bordering countries, including um, Congo Uh, where they would set up kind of these encampments in the border forests that bordered Uganda. And as I talked about on part one, this is where the Bawindi National Park falls into. Those simply visiting the Bawindi National Park in 1999 would feel that the heightened tension of 1994 was years behind them and that they were most likely safe on this side of the border. But they were wrong. That morning, March 2nd, 1999 at the Bahoma camp in the Buindi National Park, almost five years after the Rwandan genocide ended, or quote unquote ended, it was rebel Hutus that stormed the camp, looking for tourists to kill and to abduct. The Independent reported four days after the event, quote, the Hutu militia men crossed the border in the evening and gathered on the high ground around the Buindi, in a masking manoeuvre, one group peeled off to attack the village of um, Budagoda to draw away units of the Ugandan army in the area while others moved to the three safari camps. They converged on the camps, set within a few hundred yards of each other, just before 7am and attacked the guard posts, manned by half-asleep rangers with kalashnikovs and grenades. While well, one group killed the guards, the others looted the cabins and tents and raced each other to get to the highest tent, a honeymoon suite, where a couple were staying, and dragged them out as they clung to each other. Rob Halbner and Susan Miller, 48 and 42, were the only Americans killed, unquote. So, That's why I started with, on part one, talking about Elizabeth Garland's recollections. She heard the initial attack, but she didn't witness the abduction and the rounding up of many in the camp. So as the Hutus attacked the camp and rounded up tourists, they demanded to know who was British and who was American. They were leaving French tourists that were there behind, you know, Dutch tourists, British tourists, but they essentially were looking specifically for Americans or British, and they immediately killed many of those who were either game wardens who would be armed or Ugandans who were working on the site. And in this melee, tourists were killed on the spot, and many local Ugandans. The Ugandan community warden, John Wagaba, was tied up and essentially they burnt him alive. Um, they put him under like a burning car and set the car on fire. It's so unbelievably brutal um Hussein Kavambi, who was manager of one of the five camps at the Bwindi National Park and he survived the attack said quote the rebels were looking for Americans and British they killed four women and four men with knives machetes and axes unquote now this would come later when they would abduct them Survivors would later tell of rebels leaving notes pinned to these butchered bodies that had been attacked with machetes, stating that they, quote, we are not happy with the Americans and the British, you support our enemy, we do not want you on our land, unquote. Now, Of the many at the camps that day obviously a lot of them would be confused and wonder how they were being kind of how they played into this international event considering they would ultimately take 31 tourists on a death march essentially up into the mountains and many of them weren't just American and British they also took New Zealanders which many believe that they Many now just believe that the rebels just thought that New Zealanders and Australians were British um, or that, you know, we were just a Western enemy. So essentially, most of the survivors say that even if they were dressed with their shoes on, they were told to take their shoes off and they were then told to march deep into the forest towards the Congolese border, leaving the camp and its remaining survivors left behind awaiting help. And they would be forced to march for about 10 hours barefoot towards the border mountains of the Congo, essentially aiming to reach the mountains where these Hutus that had been hiding out there had encampments. Um, they took New Zealanders and Australians, Swiss, um, six Britons, three Americans and a Canadian were amongst those kidnapped, kidnapped but there were other nationalities and we don't have a list of every single person kidnapped. People would slip off from the group as they were marched single file through the jungle barefoot. Bear in mind they're barefoot because they've been told to be. Meanwhile they're being told to hurry up. So even though it's hard to get a definitive list of people taken and who survived, I have managed to finally narrow down who was killed because most Sources don't list all of them. For instance, British sources will only talk about the British victims. The New Zealand Herald will only talk about the Kiwi victims. The American sources will only talk about the American victims. So essentially, I'm going with what I've wrapped up, which is in line with what the Associated Press said. And they said that 31 were taken initially, 17 would escape into the jungle to make their way back to the camp all were freed afterwards and 14 more of that group were then frog marched through towards the border with the democratic republic of congo of these 14 left eight of these would be killed while the remaining six would be released now this is where a hero comes in which i just love this guy i went off and looked and read about him because he is the guy that you want in this situation And his name is Mark Ross. And online, he goes by Mark C. Ross. And he was 43 at the time. And he's from Arkansas originally, but he's lived all over Africa for decades. I kind of think of him as an Indiana Jones type. He has like a moustache. He looks like just a really trustworthy guy. I know Indiana Jones didn't have a moustache. You don't have to correct me. I love Indiana Jones. Um, And he would essentially be crucial, I think, to securing the release of the final six. Everybody who survived said if it wasn't for Mark Ross, they would have been killed. Um, and he's just a hero. So at the end of this, I will shout him out. But as the group was mo- moved through the forest, some sources say that the rebels were initially like oddly sympathetic towards particularly like women in the group. So one woman who was kind of she didn't have her glasses and she couldn't see. And so she said, oh, I don't I can't see anything and I'm barefoot as well. And so they let her like drop back. And then another one who was an American woman in her 50s, really smart. She was, I think, 54. She was with a friend of hers on the trip and she feigned an asthma attack. And they kind of took pity on her and they said, all right, you can leave with your friend and walk back. So these two older women were able to make an escape. Some would slip away undetected into the jungle. while well, the ones that were killed were taken away from the line for no obvious reason. Their bodies would later be found essentially in the worst possible way you can imagine. But it seems that this initial patience with some of the older women in particular wore thin for these rebels and they began massacring those that couldn't walk fast enough. The survivors left behind didn't witness the killings from what I could find. They would essentially, because there's like a 100 men walking with them from this rebel group and they had them throughout the group but they were walking single file, people were able to drop off or kind of escape in dribs and drabs. But they, when somebody would start to piss them off, they would essentially just have one of the men or two of the men take those people into the trees, into the forest, away from the group. And the group wouldn't see what would happen next. But when the bodies would be recovered, luck, we would know. Uganda's army at this point was attempting to pursue them, but they said that the rebels were just moving too fast in order to catch up with them. So the Americans that I talked about earlier, Rob Halbner, he was 48, and his wife, Sue Miller, was 42. They worked for Intel, um, Intel Corp in the United States. And they were actually on the tour group of Mark Ross, who ran a tour group for, at the time, I believe he was working for a British tour group called Abercrombie and Kent, but that ran tours, to the Buindi National Park so he had four people in his tour group at the camp at the time and when the initial attack happened on the Bohoma camp he was up and kind of about already that morning because he was getting ready because he had you know a group to get ready for that day and he went to his four American tour group people in their tents and he told them to stay put it was in two separate tents. Now, Rob Hauptner and Sue were in one and there was an American couple in the other. And the unfortunate thing was, as Mark Ross would later say, Rob Houtner and his wife, Susan Miller, would actually, they would have gotten away had they just followed what he said to do, which was to stay put in their tents. Um, because Rob, Mark Ross essentially ran to the main, the main guard shack at, at, in order to arm himself and to call for help. And the other two that survived would slip out the back of their tent into the jungle and hide in the jungle until help arrived. Whereas Rob Houtner and Susan Miller followed Mark Ross, who was then rounded up by this rebel group. And they were marched into the jungle and And they were two that could, they don't say exactly what happened to them, but essentially what I've been able to put together, um, they were from Oregon. It was their third trip to Africa with another couple from the company that would survive and they couldn't keep up and they were taken into the jungle and they were essentially like, um, like murdered with machetes essentially. Now, Mark Ross was a bush pilot. This is why he's like an Indiana Jones figure to me. He's a true hero. Um, he's an all round badass. He's in like, he's probably like Late sixties now, he's still out there. Thank God. Um, he was forty-three at the time because he'd lived in Africa for so long. He spoke a number of different languages, including Swahili, so he was able to speak to these Hutus, which kept them up the front with him. And he became kind of the unofficial spokesman for the group. He said later, "Quote: They started interrogating me loosely about what the war in Congo was about and what I was going to tell people when I got back. It seemed like an angle we could use to get out of this. So I said." why don't you write down what it is you want to say and we'll take it back, unquote. And ultimately, this is what would secure the release of the final six surviving people in the group, um, which is just amazing. Um, So essentially, he said, at one point, Mark Ross said, as they were walking um, a number of A couple of women who ended up, I believe, being the New Zealand victims. I'll talk about two young women on a trip together, which is just is just terrible. They were in their late twenties. He said that at one point they had been taken by guards from the group and told that they were going to be taken back to the camp and let go. And he honestly like took them on their word that that's what was going to happen. And then he said when they were able to, at the end, secure the release of the final six and trek all the way back into camp with Mark Ross leading them, he said, quote, We came across this first set of bodies. The women that we'd been told would be escorted back had been killed on the spot. It looked like one was raped prior to being killed, unquote. And these were the two New Zealand women I'll talk about. Stephen Roberts, he was from Edinburgh originally, but he was actually living in Melbourne at the time and had been for a long time. But he's always considered a British a British victim, although his whole family lived in Australia. Um, And he, I believe, was an Australian citizen and I guess he could have used that to get out of it, but he was probably travelling on a UK passport. He had left his job at an, ele- at an electrical store to travel the world um, and to visit... The Buindi National Park, um, after seeing gorillas in the mist in the late '80s um, and he was he was killed with a machete twenty three year old Mark Lindgren was the other British victim. He came from St Albans in England He was a former Nottingham University student. He was two weeks into a final three month holiday before returning home to start a permanent job in the u k His parents described him as kind-hearted and generous and he was one of the eight killed on this death march. There was also Britain Martin friend who travelled to Nairobi uh, two weeks earlier in Kenya to meet up with his friend Gary and then the two would head off to Uganda to do this particular trip to see the gorillas in the Bwindi National Park. Gary, his full name's Gary Tappenden, he would survive And while Martin Friend's family couldn't obviously speak after the event, Gary's father did about Martin and he said, quote, it is so unfair, he was so young and so full of life, he was a smashing lad, he was happy and cheerful and so much looking forward to this trip, unquote. Um, He also went on to say, quote, Gary told us he feared for his life and he said that he thought he was going to die. Gary is still very tearful and shaken up. He has not really told us anything he has been through, unquote. And this was in the days following um, them, you know, returning to the camp. And obviously Gary Tappenden likely saw the murder of his friend, which is just in the worst possible way. Um, Now, there was also... The two other victims were, were actually New Zealanders and New Zealand's not a global power and you would think why are they embroiled in this? Why were they taken? I think they were just collateral damage. Um, this was a woman from Auckland who currently lived in London called Rhonda Avis. She was 27 and she was married to her high school sweetheart um, and reading his quotes is just heartbreaking the other one was Michelle Strathen. she was 26 and she came from Timaru in New Zealand both these were the two women that were everyone was told they would be taken back to the camp safe and they were then just murdered in just a horror just just horrific and one of them was raped it looked like um, they don't go into details of that and I'm kind of glad they don't Rhonda's dad told the New Zealand Herald, quote, she was a warm, selfless and caring person with a passion for adventure and travel. Recently her mother asked her, aren't you sick of travelling? And her answer was never, unquote. Michelle Strathern's family could not speak at the time. Um, They asked for privacy and even today as these events continue to spill over into 2023, um, they've only really become vocal as a result of events I'll talk about shortly. So Rhonda's husband would survive the attack and would go on to try to put his life together. So I found a story through the BBC, which is quite incredible, really. This was the survival story of a woman called Daniel Walters. She was a flight attendant, a Swiss flight attendant. um, And she, it's just some people's lives, what they're dealt. It's hard to fathom. Dania had been a Swiss, she was in her late 20s, she'd been a flight attendant for Swissair and the year before that, this event happened she had lost a, pretty much a huge number of her friends and colleagues on a plane crash of Swissair flight 111 that crashed the year before and there were no survivors of that and she had had to take you know time off work and she was really reeling from this because Dania had been on standby to work on that particular flight And as fate would have it, she wasn't called up to work on it and her life was spared. Um, Just a strange twist of fate. Dania was on the trip to Uganda to see the gorillas in their natural habitat and to do something incredible and to heal from this horrible event when she was taken hostage in this situation. Um, Now, Dania speaks French and she was talking about how when the groups were rounded up, and they left French tourists behind because they didn't consider the French particular enemies of them. Um, she could have easily just spoken French and showed her Swiss passport and, you know, said, I speak French, I'm not involved in this and being left behind. But she was on the trip with friends and she didn't want to leave her friends. So instead of speaking French and being left behind at the Bahama camp, she spoke English in order to go with her friends. And she's such like an admirable, amazing woman. It's interesting the choices. Is- You make in that moment, you know. She she, her, it wasn't. Her option was fight, not flight or freeze, which is so interesting to me. She's such an interesting woman. She she, she'd make a great flight attendant in an emergency situation. So while they were walking, she said, "Quote: Two of my friends were taken to one side." I pleaded that one of the men was my brother and to let him stay with us. That was the last I saw of them, unquote. Now, these were the people on her tour group. And while she doesn't name who they were, I believe they were the British ones I talked about earlier. He wasn't her brother. She was just saying, that to try to get them not to take him away and kill him. But despite this, she, like Mark Ross, still had this wherewithal to try to take what a lot of experts say, try to get the enemy on your side. So Danny was chatting to them despite seeing all of this and experiencing all of this. She was talking about pop music with them, with one of the gorillas who was into pop music. And it just shows that we all have these funny threads in common with people. And when they had looted the camp, they'd taken all kinds of different stuff and they were going through, like, their, you know, their looted treasure and they were asking her what things were and they pulled out a deodorant stick, which I imagine living in the mountains of the Congo, they were not familiar with Rexona, and they were like, what's this, to Dania, and Dania was explaining how to use a deodorant stick. It's just, it would be so... um. <laughs> It'd be an out-of-body experience, like I'm having this conversation while well, this is happening around me. Danny would ultimately credit Mark Ross for saving her life and for securing the release of the final six in that group, which included her, and so does Gary Tappenden, whose friend Martin unfortunately was killed. <sighs> ultimately, just to kind of shore up the fact that Mark Ross is Indiana Jones, um, the Arkansas Indiana Jones, once they the six survivors were sent back and for whatever reason, I can't get into the psychology of these these rebels, um, and they continued on to the Congo and they sent them back and Mark Ross trekked with them for like eight hours back to the nearest camp where they all had to sleep in a tent together that entire night and wait for help. When they got to that park, they found a plane and because he was a bush pilot, he was able to start the plane with a pocket knife and get them to safety if he's not indian jones i don't know who he is now mark ross would say that as they walked back that's when they came across five of the butchered bodies on the path um, because the, it's so thick the terrain that a lot of the um, rebels were sent ahead to hit through this thick terrain and vegetation with machetes. They were also obviously using these to kill people. And when they came across these bodies, what Mark Ross saw and what the other survivors saw is super important because it clashes with what the Ugandan police spokesman later would say happened. Um, Mark Ross said, quote, the ones I saw had their heads crushed in and deep slashes, unquote. Now, likely they were either attacked with machetes. The rebels were also carrying axes, but also they were probably like pistol whipped or hit with the butt of a rifle in order to kill them while they were on the ground. Now, later on, the police spokesman for Uganda, Eric Nagami, would say that actually these five tourists were killed in a gun battle between the rebels and Ugandan soldiers during a rescue operation where the Ugandan soldiers got really close to securing their release, which is not the case. We, we know that's not because what the survivors saw, these people were attacked like with machetes. So it's obviously the Ugandan police spokesman like trying to downplay how violent this attack was because this would later affect tourism in a big way for the Buindi National Park and for guerrilla tourism. And this is going to affect a lot of people in a roll-on effect. And this is the most common thread throughout this whole podcast governments, you know, or spokespeople trying to, you know, protect tourism at all costs. That's generally the same thread that runs through every story. The Ugandan military would ultimately kill a number of these rebels and catch quite a lot of them. Um, At one point, there was a shootout where they killed 15. Many of them would escape back into Congo um, and are still on the run today. The bodies of the eight killed were recovered and flown home to their respective countries. And Mark Ross now lives in Kenya. He lives in Nairobi. I want to give a shout out to him and his website. It is Mark RossSafaris.com. You can read all about him. I believe he still takes small tour groups out. He also has a book that I came across called Dangerous Beauty Life and Death in Africa. True stories from a safari guide, unquote. So Mark Ross if you ever listen to this, which is unlikely you will, you are a legend. So you're not going to like kind of the wrap up to this because unfortunately I can't tell you that they caught every single one of them. Obviously there's 100 to 150 that they all face justice and, you know, for what they did because it's it's just not the case. Um, the various, this became an international event because, and this is why it's so hard to get a direct read on this case and to get it all in some sort of linear format because for the Americans, the FBI launched an investigation on the ground in Uganda, Scotland Yard did for the UK, the New Zealand government did for the New, Zealand, New Zealanders um, and ultimately the FBI were kind of investigating this as a terrorist a terrorist attack even though it was pre the time where we would use that quite widely. So, ultimately, through an FBI investigation, three Rwandan men were, like, arrested for their involvement in the killing of the two Americans I told you about. Um, and they described them as being hacked to death. Um, so, you can imagine what that was. And these men admitted to this. And in a, in an interesting twist that we've talked about previously, similar laws to this... Um, there are loopholes where this can happen. They were extradited to the United States um, where they were put on trial essentially and prosecutors were pushing for the death penalty. Now this can happen. You can commit a crime in another country and then be charged. We talked about this in the Carolyn Abel case in South Korea, changing laws regarding this kind of thing but in regards to this, the case that I kind of think about because you're killing American citizens. And I haven't done this case. And I can't think of what their names are. But it was the guy who was on trial for turning off Well, he was on a honeymoon with his wife in Australia, the American guy, he turned off her oxygen while they were scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef and she died. And he was charged here. But then I, I believe he was put on trial in the United States as well once he was extradited. And so I'll do that case at some point. But I think the United States is one of the few that will actually kind of use this loophole ultimately they were held like for years um and I don't really have an issue with it like to be honest I, I mean they weren't in Guantanamo Bay I do believe that you should be able to get a timely trial no matter what happens um if something carries on you shouldn't be held without official charges at all I don't believe that you have to have the case in order to put it against you but I don't believe they should be able to to draw it out for a decade or so, that's, you just can't do that. But the case would collapse in 2006 because a judge in the United States would rule that the confessions had been, had been obtained via torture by, in Rwandan prisons by Rwandan guards. So the Rwandans trying to kind of hand over these three guys to the United States. And so the guys essentially, they, they tried to claim asylum status because they didn't want to return home to to Rwanda um, because they fear of persecution. That's the main reason why you apply for asylum. And the US government wouldn't grant them asylum. Uh, So what happened? Um, They were in immigration detention. And then a couple of years ago, a few years ago, they were resettled in Australia. Um, We had a refugee swap deal um, between then... Obama president and our then prime minister, who I think most agree was just a complete waste of space, Malcolm Turnbull. And Malcolm Turnbull just said, yeah, let him come here. No worries. He said, yeah, we've done background checks on all of them, even though they were, you know, rebels and violent and regardless of if they did this, they did other crimes. Um, and he said, um, I found a quote where he said, we just don't take them if they come in on boats. So anyway, they're here now. Um and obviously the parents of uh the Australian Scottish Scottish born Australian victim are not happy. They've been very vocal in recent years. The New Zealand victims think it's grotesque. Uh the American victims families, it sickens them. Um and so for some reason they're out here and and enjoying the fruits of the fruits of Australia. Um So, I mean, whatever, I have nothing to say on that. Um, I'm sure that they were in prison in Rwanda. You know, they were Hutus. Um, I'm sure they'd done atrocities and now they could be living next door to me. They could be living next door to the father of um, the Scottish-born Australian victim who, you know, now lives in Perth. I mean, you're not allowed access to where these people live. You're not allowed to know where they're resettled. So they just get a whole new life. Um, a couple of years ago, and I can't really get a read on if this is still current because it's so hard to get an up-to-date source on any of this. It, people were just languishing across the world for decades, you know, um, in prisons, waiting trials and in, in immigration detention. And some of them are in in refugee camps in, in Uganda. Some of them are in prison in Uganda. Some of them are in prison in Congo. Some of them are in prison in Rwanda. Um, one man just a couple of years ago, the last read I had on it, he was in detention in Florida, refusing to go back to Rwanda for fear of persecution. Now, before I kind of wrap up this case, because that is pretty much it, I came across, you know, this this article when you, when you search for this case, and I, I kind of glanced over it, and then I thought, mm, and then I came back to it, and I wanted to include it, because not that I believe it at all, but there are people who are from Rwanda who participated, you know, who were members of the RP, um, the RPF, and things like that. The Rwandan Rwandan Patriot Front, who believe that essentially that this was not per- perpetrated by Hutus at all, this event, and that there, in fact, it was perpetrated by other people and I'm going to read you this guy's letter that he open letter that he wrote to the families of the victims and to the survivors as well and then I'll discuss it kind of afterwards to the families of the Bowindi Jungle Massacre of March 1999, allow me to first and foremost extend my heartfelt condolences for your loss. You have not only lost irreplaceable family members, but you have also been denied of the truth regarding what happened in Bowindi in March 1999 my name is M- Noble Marara. I am a former soldier of the Rwanda Patriot Army, 1991 to 2000. I served in President Paul Kagami's Presidential Guard Unit. I've written extensively about my experience in the RPA. Sorry, I called it the RPF earlier. It's the RPA, Army, not Front. And then he writes, you may want to read my book and he links to an Amazon link. So this is where, you know, he's trying to I get he's trying to build up the fact that I'm a legitimate person, like trying to build legitimacy. But when you start like promoting something, you lose me a little bit, but I'll continue. Although you may be inclined to dismiss my intervention in this matter, like those who have been misguided into branding me as another disgruntled element, I challenge you to take a closer look at the version of what happened by the Rwandan authorities that I say you were cleverly deceived into believing. In August of 2012, Indian Yeri News Group raised the alarm over the massacre of tourists in Bawindi. He's got a lot of spelling mistakes here. I continue to think, as we wrote in this article in 2012, until proof of the contrary, that Kagame was behind the killing of these tourists in Bawindi National Park, which was prominently featured in Western media that the RPF, see, he calls it RPF there, so I'm not totally wrong, immediately blamed it on the Interahamwe, which is the Hutu Hutu rebel group, and so did the Western media. Even though it was clear that the crime had been committed by RPF soldiers dis- uh, disguised as Interahamwe, And further, the decision to kill Western tourists venturing in that area had been undertaken for these two reasons. One, to internationalise the issue of Hutu rebels by accusing them of killing innocent Western tourists and to secure RPF a go-ahead in fighting them the way it wants and wherever they are so much are suspected to be present in any area on its radar – Two, RPF suspected some Westerners of sympathising with Hutu rebels and disclosing to them the positions of the RPF. Moreover, the presence of foreigners near an insurgent area was hindering RPF operations covered up as counter-insurgent operations. I'm still astonished to see that the events as recounted by Rwandan authorities, including the alleged torture of witnesses who were extradited, taken through the American justice and immigration systems and now resettled, for some, in Australia, is still taken for truth with no further questions asked. It would be a source of serious embarrassment for the powerful countries involved were they to acknowledge having been duped by Rwanda for so long. But the truth is that justice has yet to be served and the, fa- the truth is still owed to those who lost their loved ones, to this additional political ma- manipulation and deception that Mr Kagame has mastered." These events in Bawindi gave Mr Kagame the perfect excuse to justify his subsequent occupation of the mineral-rich regions of the EST of the Democratic Republic of Congo, under the guise of hunting for Hutu rebels for years until the defeat of his de facto proxy rebellion, the M23, Noble Marara. So there's a lot in that, and I'll be, I'll be honest, when I was putting this together, I I thought there was just such a lack of information for such a major international incident that I started to get a little bit conspiratorial. I wondered, you know, for myself, why I couldn't get just like basic information on on victims and things. He's not disputing the fact that it happened. I'm not disputing the fact that it happened. I believe that it went down exactly the way I've told you it went down but what he's saying is that someone else entirely was behind the killings um for obviously other purposes and a couple of the things that he mentioned in that did kind of come to fruition although a couple did not so it's totally up to you what you think but i go back to mark ross who doesn't have skin in the game he's an american who's lived in australia um in africa for for decades. Um, he survived it. He spoke to them um, in Swahili, to the other, vic- the other survivors who witnessed what they witnessed. Um, they witnessed them, you know, taking responsibility, pinning literal notes on the dead bodies saying why. Now, this guy, Noble, kind of says that it was a setup, that they were pinning it on saying, yeah, we're the Hutus and we're pissed off, where in fact it was, it was, you know, um someone else entirely you know what i mean um so he says it's the rpf um and to kind of clear out this region i mean you know i'm always open to reading these kinds of things but in this instance i i do believe it went down the way that i think it went down at least and how most survivors do as well Um, but yeah, I mean, you can always read his book if you want to know. Um, I, the, the thing is I tried to find other people talking about this exact thing and I just couldn't. Um, and of course he's going to have his own reasons for saying these kinds of things. A lot of them may not be honest either. I can't just take it on his word. Just some guy writing a letter who says he served when he may not have, um, I'd need like kind of further evidence of that. Um, I guess what he says about internationalising the issue of Hutu rebels and kind of pitting the blame on them is something that you could kind of consider because um, this became an international event comprised of so many different nationalities, victims, and it would be the ideal way to do that. Um, But also I just walk away thinking this whole thing seemed so... Um, initially it seemed so organised when they attacked, they did this blitz attack on the camp, but then everything following on seemed so disorganised, it's like they didn't even have a plan. And I believe that if this was kind of organised by Rwanda, you know, in some sort of government conspiracy, it would have been way more organised. Do you know what I mean? And they (laughs) Um, they wouldn't just be letting people randomly go and you know talking to people about deodorant sticks and then at the end letting some American tour guide talk them into letting everybody else go Um, I think it would be would have been a lot more organized than that so that's kind of what I think anyway Um, so that is the end of this week's episode thank you so much to Rich for requesting this case it really got my brain going and I had to learn a lot of new stuff Um, and now I'm going to give you a couple of world headlines. So the first article kind of sent me on a bit of a random wormhole on Google um, because It interested me for a number of reasons. Um, The headline, and this is from the Daily Mail, the 28th of February: quote, best chef in the world, Guy Savoy, is mysteriously stripped of a Michelin star at his Paris restaurant. 20 years since best friend Bernard Loiseau took his life after he dropped a rating, unquote. Now, previously, kind of in my job, I've actually interviewed a couple of Michelin star. People who actually hold like multiple Michelin stars. I interviewed a guy um who held three, um, a Spanish guy once, Spanish chef. And so I understand kind of what goes into it um and how stressful it is, but I didn't I didn't fully kind of grasp that once you got the stars, you have to retain them. You're not just giving them forever. Now, this article was mainly about Guy Savoy who's he's his restaurant in Paris has dropped a star that's gone from three to two and it's like pissed him off big time. He's had three star status since 2002. He's named the best chef in the world for the six year running. He just got the accolade again. And then suddenly Michelin just drops a star and they won't give him an explanation. And when they do give an explanation, I couldn't even make sense of their explanation. It's kind of like everyone gets an award kind of mentality. Um, which is bad. Um, everyone gets a certificate of achievement kind of mentality. Now, they still won't give him an explanation. And then I started reading the article and it kind of went into how stressful it is to retain Michelin stars. They do these random audits of your thing. You have to, it's really intensive, like interviewing and um, really intensive kind of scoring system. How many times they have to go to your your place. I was thinking, I know that he took his own life. I'm familiar with that because I loved him and I've done multiple episodes on his life. But I was thinking Anthony Bourdain would tell these people to go and fuck themselves. He really would. If he'd had a restaurant that was given a Michelin star and they politicised the whole thing and it was no longer about food, I was like, I'd love to hear what Anthony Bourdain said about Michelin stars because he would have just been like, fuck off. This is not worth it. But then I started looking into the two people they mentioned in this article, including um, Bernard Loiseau, who had a restaurant, I believe, in Switzerland. And they dropped a star, would not give him an explanation, and he went and put a gun in his mouth and killed himself. And I was thinking, this is just a terrible organisation. There's also another organisation that's very similar to Michelin that I wasn't familiar with that I was reading about. And essentially when Loiseau... um, there was another guy who who took his own life i was reading about um, because of the stress of retaining michelin stars and when he died they took a star off him despite the fact that nothing had changed with his restaurant or anything and when they asked why they kind of said oh well you know like he you, he's he we can't just cuz he's dead say he's the best forever kind of it was a really strange Remark. Um, and I, I just walked away from this wormhole that I was in on Google, thinking Michelin is such a shitty organization. Um, and there's so much pressure put on these people where it's no longer about the food; it's just this politicization of the food through an organization, which happens with everything. Um, and you know, ugh, just I might do Bernard Lasso's story one time because I went off and read about him, and it was just. Tragic, and there's so many lessons in it, you know, and it's so sad and so avoidable because he actually openly said, like, that he would kill himself if they did that. (sighs) To jump to a story that's on the other end of the happiness scale, this was Sky News a couple of weeks ago. I actually screen capped it because it just made me laugh out loud. there's quote. There's a guy in the United States who's been to Disneyland two thousand nine hundred ninety nine days in a row, and he's taken out the Guinness World Record for the most consecutive visits to the theme park ever. Unquote. So obviously, I had to go and look up this guy. I've never been to Disneyland. I've never been to the States. I I hear from about people all the time who just go because there's bars there. I like, and just go and chill out at these bars. I guess I I can't really picture it. I suppose. But this guy, I went and looked him up. He's a military veteran. Initially, I was like, that's the saddest thing I've ever, I've ever heard. But then I actually felt sad for him because I feel like he's just lonely and it gives him like a place to go to feel happy. And that's kind of what he said. He was like alone. He said, it's better than sitting on my ass like at home. So this was before COVID. Essentially, he went 2,995 days in a row. It kicked off because he was given an annual pass, which today is like $1,500 or something. And He's given it as a gift for some reason, and he went, and then he just decided to keep going because it was twenty minutes away um, from his house in Anaheim, and he he just goes all the time now. Anyway, he hasn't gone since twenty twenty. Um, after but the lead up to that was enough to get him the Guinness World Record for the most consecutive visits to Disneyland ever. And he said like, even during COVID, he would go and he'd wear like a mask. And he said, sometimes I'd just go for an hour and I'd just sit there. And he said, I meet people and I talk to people and everyone's happy there. And it really is the happiest place on earth. And I was like, as much as I've got issues with Disney and like kind of want to like kind of, a lot of choices it's made in recent decades like this is one th- common thing that I hear from people like how can you be unhappy when you go to Disneyland and I think that's exactly what Walt Disney kind of tried to do when he he set it up like he didn't want that joy to end even if you were an adult that childhood joy and so I kind of walked in being a bit bitchy about it and I walked out thinking oh like that's sweet I think you should I, I actually walked away going I want him to go again. I want him to be happy. All right. And this is the final one. Um, And this was actually in the news literally a couple of hours ago um, before I'm recording this. Like it was actually it was the 4th of March yesterday. Um, Quote, French authorities fear narco tourists could flock to Normandy beaches after more than two tons of cocaine washed ashore so normandy famous for the landing the normandy landings now what's you know coming up on the beach is not kind of heroes during a war it's it's just massive massive bags full of tons of cocaine you can see pictures of it this is like this it's it's between these coastal towns on the Normandy coast, that are super quiet and stuff, and these people are in like the center of a nightmare right now. A local prosecutor issued a public warning amid rising concern of narco tourism. Re- residents have also reported an influx influx of strangers in luxury cars visiting the area. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder what they're doing. That's called a like. That's called a pickup, isn't it? Um. So these poor people are kind of um. In the middle of it, which I mean, it doesn't surprise you. This happens all over the world. It was just the pictures that drew me to it. Cause it's like the beaches of Normandy and it's so quiet and it's still winter there. So it's like pristine, pristine and quiet. And then there's just these massive bags of cocaine with like floaties attached to them. Um, and it has a street value of around 133 million pounds. Um, The public prosecutor talked about how there was a man who consumed cocaine that washed ashore um, on the western coast of France in 2019. And the mayor of the local town that's being hit with all these bags of cocaine says, quote, the sea brings us many things, but this is obviously very unusual. We've seen people arriving in four by fours, brand new cars or quad bikes on the beach, sometimes at dawn with head torches. (laughs) It could also just be locals trying to um, see if there's any coke like that's arrived. Um, so yeah, more than 1,657 pounds or 600, 760 kilos of drug parcels were discovered on beaches, including in La Porge and Cap Breton along the Atlantic coast in Southwestern France. Um, that was last year. So keep an eye on that. Um, it's kind of bringing drama to locals that I'm sure that they're not really into. Um, and that was World Headlines. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode and learned something. I, I sure have. Um, become a patron. at links off the website. The website's unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. No, that's a That is an email address. It's unknownpassagepodcast.com. Um, I'm not taking case requests at the moment, um, as I've said before. Um, and yeah, join the Patreon, download the Patreon app and search for Unknown Passage and join our little community. It's so helpful to me. Um, cause I just love doing this and it means that I, I can kind of take a bit of time off from my work each week and put these together. Cause this is not a full-time job for me and I don't have researchers. I like a lot of podcasts do. I don't, There's no ads, nothing like that, and it's staying that way. Um, So thank you for your support. Um, If you'd like to give to the PayPal, it's the email I said earlier, knownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. Leave a rating or review. If you're on Spotify, go to the main podcast page and go to the stars at the top and click five stars. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode. It will be a Patreon location request. Um, I've got a lot of really interesting cases for you this year that I'm really, really excited to do and and to learn along with you and I'll be back then. Have a great week guys. All the best.